You're listening to the Thread Wellbeing Podcast, where we speak with new thought leaders about their sole purpose. We acknowledge the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people, the traditional custodians of the land this podcast is put together on. We pay our deepest respects to their elders past and present. Today's conversation is with Dr. Stuart Norton from Dr. Stuart Norton Psychology. Viewers are warned that the following program contains discussions on grief, suicide and physical abuse, which may cause discomfort. At any point, if this episode does so, know you can choose to exit and call Lifeline 131114 or Beyond Blue 1300 224 636. I would like to introduce our next guest for today on The Thread, Dr. Stuart Norton, who is a psychologist specialising in relationship counselling and an associate of the Heart Centre. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Pleased to be here. I think it's really um, imperative that we have you join us at such an important time in what will be our history, but also in terms of where we are as a society, you know, a lot of us are going through this phase at the moment where we're not sure how to move. We haven't been in an environment like this before. So it's interesting to have you as a psychologist and the work that you do. Is there a main thread that you're seeing with your clients that are coming to you at the moment? Um, well, I would say pre predictably enough, I would say that the subject of the coronavirus is entering into nearly every single session, which isn't, isn't too much of a surprise because it's entering most people's conversations day to day. So that's reflected in, in counselling at the moment. Um, it's pretty unusual for it not to come up, but it, it, it varies in terms of how it's affecting people, which again, isn't that surprising. So at the very least, you might have somebody saying, look, it's um, adding another layer of external stress on our household or on or on my personal life um at the very least people will say that and, and at the very most it might be someone who has kind of been devastated by it for either health reasons or knowing someone who's unwell or because of the financial consequences of it you know i have clients who are musicians and entertainers and hospitality industry tourism some of the industries that have just been kind of destroyed by it for now decimated by it for now and so some of those people who don't have a light at the end of the tunnel are really really struggling and some people are more you know worriers than others as well um so it varies but it's it's coming up in in all the sessions one way or another and Stuart what would you say um because what we're noticing is there's a number of themes that are coming up for a number of people. Um, and I've seen that myself just in, with my own sort of client base. But what I'm noticing is that different people are experiencing different um, feelings and emotions from this time. Uh, what are you noticing as a common theme um, with, say, couples or individuals? And you just mentioned about light at the end of the tunnel. 
how do you speak to that? Like, how do you give someone hope when all they see at this moment is bad news after bad news after bad news? Good question. Um, well, firstly, um, in terms of affecting individuals, I think, and there's a lot to say about that, but one of the things that I think stands out and one of the things that, that I, I find concerning and, and sad is kind of the people who are single, who don't have an in, intimate partner, intimate relationship. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that can, that can be difficult for some people at the best of times, but then to have some of the messages reinforced such as, um, you know, you can't have visitors or you can't interact with someone unless it's an intimate partner. And that's pretty confronting for people who are either wishing they had one or, you know, struggling with, with loneliness or solitude. So that's a, I don't know if that's, I mean, I understand the, the wording of the policy. I understand the pragmatics of that, but you know, it is, it is unfortunate. So maybe, you know, extra support for people who are single or don't have an intimate partner. I've, I heard, um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody uh, in, in the newspapers being interviewed and saying um, kind of a request to the government that can I have a special friend come over? You know, does it have to be a, an intimate or sexual partner? And I think that's a really good point. I don't know about the pragmatics of it, but I think it's worthwhile mentioning that it is probably from that perspective, extra tough for people who don't have what is defined as an intimate relationship. Um, that's one of the things that stands out about the individuals. Um, another thing is, I think what we were chatting about the other day about the extroversion and introversion, you know, which, which is, you know, one, one definition, one, one dimension of personality and it's coming to light and it's very relevant at the moment. I'll have very extroverted clients who I just say, so how are you going with, you know, how are you going with the isolation? And I just burst into tears or, um, how are you going? Um, you finally got to, you know, hang out with your, your mate the other day. What was that like? And I'll burst into tears of joy, you know? So some really extroverted people are really struggling, which is quite understandable. Maybe, you know, they're not as comfortable with solitude or lack of stimulation. That's another, that's another one that stands out. People who are bored easily, or people who are sensation-seeking types, um, however that manifests itself, those people are not as equipped, just because of their demeanour, not as equipped to handle nothingness and lack of stimulation. So those are some of the things, in, you know, in terms of individual psychology that stand out. In terms of how it's affecting relationships, there are a lot, there's lots to that, because, you know, relationships are so complex, but one of the things that it's testing is, you know, the, the degrees of attachment and attachment style. So if you, you know, the two extremes being a codependent enmeshed relationship, that's one extreme of relationship, which has, has its own consequences. And the other extreme would be completely and utterly remote and, very, and, and too much distance or independence in the relationship. So of course, everyone's different in terms of their preferences. So the people who prefer to have relatively more independence 
within the relationship aren't getting that as much because they're in each other's pocket and it's harder to get time and space. So the people who relatively speaking want a bit more space and distance and uh, boundaries are probably struggling a little bit more. Um, and if they're being a little bit more avoidant and hiding, hiding in other rooms and trying to sneak out, of course that's hard for their partner who's just wanting to connect and loving the opportunity to spend more quality time or more time with their partner. So that's one thing that stands out, but there are lots. And I guess a key element I would imagine in this is um, communication between partners. Are you finding that communication is um, stepping up or there might be a lack of communication if, you know, individually you're not doing so well and you're within a partnership? Is, yeah, what would your advice be around communication and if you're not... Um, receiving what you're seeking or vice versa? Well, the, if we talk about verbal communication, you know, just wanting to, wanting to talk things through and uh, express emotions and that sort of thing. So if we talk about the verbal intimacy or the verbal connection, again, that's, that's going to play in a sense that's going to favor one partner more than the other so what if you know you might have one one partner whose love language or their way of connecting is through talking debriefing um sharing the events of the day talking about what their plans are um expressing emotion if that's their preference um and the other person is less comfortable with that you know they prefer more quiet um, they don't, they're maybe not quite as verbally confident or they like more stillness. Those discrepancies will be amplified a little bit. So, I mean, the default, the default expectation might be, you know, we need to communicate more in a, in under duress. We need to communicate more when we're in a situation like this, but that will suit one person more than the other. So there's also, it could be an argument put forward that, no, we need to just, stop communicating we need to regulate it let's so what i might do in that situation is try and put a bit of structure around it it's like okay let's let's be when we're talking when we're when we're connecting let's properly be completely present so if we're having breakfast together or lunch together or going for a walk together yeah sure be try and be 100 percent present and connected but in those off times maybe permission to not connect would be good. Permission to lock yourself in the other room and do your stuff, do your work calls or whatever. So yeah, that kind of thing needs to be negotiated a little bit, I think. That's powerful. I, I like how you used the term love language and you know, we're familiar with that from a number of sources. But I think um, the fact about being 100% present when you are, with them and to have those times. And I know at the moment, our uh, recreation time has been reduced to an hour. So to, to leave outdoors and have that sort of open communication, often people say, well, how do you communicate? And living with someone for a long period of time over a 24 hour day can be quite um, difficult for many families and also for children. And, you know, and often too confined spaces with lots of noise, um, people still feeling the pressure to work. 
so there's still lots of pressure on families. Mm -hmm. If we look at families for a moment, mm -hmm. there is a lot of pressure on couples and couples to communicate as a couple, but then there's pressure on a family unit as such and children being homeschooled. What techniques can you um, give to assist fam parents uh, with children who are particularly being homeschooled um, and also coping mechanisms for children when if they're fortunate enough to have a backyard they can go out in the backyard but if not what are some things they can do inside if they're limited to that one hour of recreation? Well I think for me I mean maybe I'm, 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 I'm pretty I've become more and more I'm not the most structured, structured, organized person in the world, but I think over time, over the years, I've working with clients, I've, I've seen the benefits of scheduling and structure in, you know, in life in general. And I think that's very important at the moment. Now I don't mean, I don't mean busyness. I don't, I don't, don't encourage people to be more busy unless they feel they need to be, but definitely more structured. So know when, know when you're supposed to be working, know when you're supposed to be watching TV and chilling out, know when you're supposed to be sleeping, know when you're supposed to be hanging out with someone or doing a Zoom call or whatever. So at least, at least try and impose some structure on yourself um, so there's less time to ruminate, less downtime where people often struggle most when there's no structure and they don't know what they should be doing with themselves. So if you apply that to the family, I've seen the families I've seen um, seem to adapt best at the moment, you know, even when they've got lots and lots of kids and like both part, like, let's say both partners are working from home and they've got three or more kids. The ones I've seen handle that best. There is, there is a lot of communication, but there's a lot of setup. So they have a very clear agreement about, you know, who's in charge of what um, altering the, altering the work balance so that it kind of suits both people. I mean, it's a really hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to pull off, but, but both people are making a few adjustments. So putting, uh, putting a bit of structure in place so that, uh, you know, when you're on and when you're, you're in charge of looking after the kids and you know, when you're allowed to focus on work. So trying to negotiate that structure, um, which might, you might need to, I'll um, negotiate that every day. You know, that might need to be something you keep revisiting. Um, and th this is probably the next thing I want to say is probably might be a bit of a bias as well that I have, but from my, with, I've got kids as well. And what I've seen with my, with my kids um, and talking to other parents is that maybe there's been a little bit too much pressure from the schools the schooling system, maybe, maybe that's a governmental policy thing. You know, we don't want to underperform, you know, the, the last thing we want to do is, you know, drop below the curve in terms of academic achievement. So there's just really, there's a lot of pressure. My partner's a teacher as well. There's quite a lot of pressure on teachers and parents to maintain this academic standard, particularly in the first wave or the first um, lockdown. And that just puts a huge amount of pressure on, the kids, the parents, the teachers, and everyone else. So my personal opinion is just, let's just be a little bit easygoing. Let's just loosen things up a bit. 
you know, if, if, if that means you give the kids a little bit more screen time or if that means you just let them just muck around and make a mess more than they normally would, so what? There should be a, a certain amount of looseness, I reckon, and humanness at the moment. And I would ask if those um, tools that you've just said in terms of structure and, yeah, just sort of regulating something and a consistent something in the day for a family structure that works really well, would you also say for individuals that would work as well? Or is there another tool that individuals who may be living at home on their own, um, feeling demotivated, creative blocks, all this sort of stuff, what would be something that they could implement to get the ball rolling again? Good question. Yeah. I might, I might pick up on that point about the, the creative block. Um, because that's coming a lot, up a lot. People are saying, um, yeah, I, I, I'm really unmotivated. Now, some people need more sort of external stimulation to be creative than others. Some people, you know, a minority of people, you guys may, may be these people and you might know people like this. There's a, like a really um, intrinsic um, creative passion and drive. It's just for them, it's, you know, to be, to create is, uh, it's like a fundamental need and they will just, no matter what circumstances they're in, they'll be creative and artistic. So that's a minority of people uh, I find they're kind of maybe lucky in a way, or maybe they just have to do it. You know, they have to be creative all the time, every day. But for most people, it's not quite so straightforward and they, it needs to be a little bit effortful. So they need a little bit of discipline around it. I would say, you know, just know yourself. Are you that, in terms of your creativity or your motivation, can you rely on your feelings? Can you just rely on getting up and just feeling creative or feeling like going for a run or knowing yourself, do you need something else? Do you need some sort of coach or do you need some sort of plan or structure or app or something like that? Um, so you just be realistic with yourself about what, what do you need in order to be creative or in order to, do the self-care regime or something like that. So in a sense, self-motivation, you, you're talking about really the opportunity for someone to recognize if they need some tips around self-motivation. Is that what you would say? Yeah. Um, so I guess just, I guess the, the, for me, the main point is just about realism. Mm. So for example, that the, a person who, Say, say a person who knows that they need to, like they're like a high energy dog or they're a high, high energy person and they know they need to exercise strenuously every day. There's some people like that. Now, some of those people, they know they need it, but it's not fun. You know, it doesn't come naturally. They don't, they don't love it, but they know they need it. So that person might know that it just, I have to have a personal trainer, you know, if I can afford it, or I have to have some kind of, kind of plan or some structure. Or if I can't go to the gym at the moment, I need to, I need to do my workout before breakfast or something like that. So there's a, they're kind of overriding what they want by what is wise. I don't feel like being creative or I don't feel like exercising, but that is wise for me. So I'm just going to impose that. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a catch 22, isn't it? Because you might say, oh, we well, need discipline in order to 
do something like that. And that's what you're lacking. You lack motivation. You lack discipline. It's a bit of a conundrum, psychological conundrum. But I think the first step is you ask yourself, can I just rely on my feelings? Can I just rely on my in- intrinsic motivation or do I need some structure around it? And I guess in terms of people when they are asking themselves that question of can I rely on my emotions, if people are in a state at the moment where they feel that they can't and they don't really know how to navigate through that, where to start, how to sit with what's uncomfortable, how would you speak to that for someone who's in a state who doesn't yeah, who isn't familiar with these emotions that might be coming up and these feelings? Well, the clients I have who are going through something like that and they're really conflicted. It's like, I can't believe I'm not getting anything done. I'm in a rut. The, probably the first thing I would, I would do is try and normalise it and just take the pressure off and just go, okay, well, that's okay. How does that matter? Does it, does it matter? What if you were to do nothing Give yourself permission to do nothing all day. Just play with the extremes a little bit. Or what about all week? What would it be like if you just said, you know what? It's tough at the moment. I'm struggling for whatever reason. So I'm just going to give myself permission to do nothing. What would happen? And then just play around with it a little bit. Just have a, have a little thought experiment. And the person might say, oh, that would be absolutely disastrous. You know, if I, if I got nothing, if I, if I, got nothing creative done all week that would really set me back and I'd feel like I'd be back to square one and be disastrous. Okay, well let's not do that then. That's too far. What about three days? Like, "Mm, maybe that'd still be pretty disappointing. I'm like, Oh, well just play around with it. Maybe what about half a day? What if you gave yourself permission to just be a slob for the next three hours? Would that be the end of the world? They're like, mm, maybe not the end of the world. Okay, there you go. So you're sort of finding a little way. That's, that's good advice. Now, I'm just going to take us into similar topic, but a little bit deeper. Um, there is lots of talk. I know that numbers haven't really been released or highlight this. And you and I, we discussed this, the three of us, just the other day on the suicide rates. Um, and the suicide rates through this time. And I know whilst um, there's often a lag in reporting, um, you know, I think we all know um, of cases where we have started to see that there has been um, a rise in that. What can you share with us on that? Like mental health is always a core element of any society or any community. Through this period of time, we are seeing that there are different people that have different coping mechanisms, and you've shared that with us as well, and the different dimensions of a personality. But even say sometimes, at the moment what I'm noticing is even those most positive people are feeling dragged or feeling the weight of what is happening now. And more so on what I'm noticing is that people are in a wave of emotion. So you go from feeling like, okay, I'm gonna cope, I'm feeling strong, to all of a sudden feeling this overwhelming weight of the world. And then you snap yourself out and you get back on top. Now, not everyone has the ability to snap themselves out. And for me, one of my biggest concerns is that whilst we are reliant on watching the numbers daily of the increase 
in the coronavirus and um, and the people that have been infected and the people that have, have passed away from it, there are some hidden numbers that we're not seeing. And if I may, and if, with your permission, if we can go there, because I think that's a real core element that needs to be addressed. One is, okay, how do we recognise the signs of that personality type that would go there? And what can we do as your everyday citizen, partner, friend, relative, what can we do to help? Yeah. Well, I guess there are two, two questions in there. One is about what can, what can one do oneself if one is having those feelings, self-harm or suicidal ideation feelings? How can, you, how can you handle that? And the other one is what you said about and what about when it's others, when you have concern for others? Well, I reckon I, in answering that, I might reflect back on the training that I did a long time ago. I used, Life, Lifeline was the first counselling I ever did 15 years ago or something. Um, and they're very, they're very, as you would hope, they're very good about, they have very, 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 very clear kind of procedure, suicide prevention training, uh, which everyone has to do when they go through the Lifeline training because it can give confidence you can give confidence to know what what should you be doing if you're feeling that way and what should you how should you help others if they uh, are feeling that way so some of the some of the principles are um share the burden so what the telephone counselor will be one of their goals if a caller is calling in and they are having suicidal thoughts or feelings is that they will um, try and find out, well, does anyone know this? Have you said this? Have you told anyone this? Have you told anyone how you're feeling? Um, and if they have, then you, you encourage that and you, you um, commend them for, for letting people know, cause it's serious. It's really important. It's going to affect not only you, but um, anyone who knows you and cares about you. So it's, it's, to encourage people to share the burden and tell people, which is very delicate because it's a very powerful thing to say to someone, you know, who cares about you, but encouraging that. And if they, if they haven't, if they, if you're the only person they've told, then you might carefully, carefully put some pressure on and say, look, is there anyone else that you could tell? Particularly if you're not available to them 24 seven, um, or you're a practitioner and you, you don't take calls out outside of the sessions like me, for example. So I will, I'm not there for the client 24 seven. So it's very important that I gently try and link them in with someone who they might be able to tell, which is easier for some people than others. So that's one of the principles is try and share the burden. It shouldn't just be one person's responsibility to help another person. It's almost, it's really a community issue. It should be a community issue. So maybe could you tell your GP or is there anyone you've spoken to been close to in the past? Do you have a friend who could handle hearing it? Um, so they've got a, so the person has a, uh, a range of people that they might be able to draw on in an emergency. So that's one of the principles. And now what do you do if you're, what if you, what do you do if you're talking to a friend and they, they allude to suicide? or they allude to self-harm in an indirect way. So they might say, someone might say something like, yeah, I just don't know if I can handle this anymore. 
but this is just i can't see a light at the end of the tunnel i'm not sure if i can go on or if i'm going to make it or something like that i'm not sure if i'm going to make it so i'll use myself as an example i think before i ever did that lifeline training i would have been the kind of person who would have probably pretended i didn't hear it someone said that i just assume i'd just hope for the best and i would be like oh yeah that's just an expression that's um moving right along try and cheer them up maybe with a joke um but i learned i learned through the training that counterintuitively no you probably shouldn't steer them away and try and cheer them up if someone says that you should probably go to it you should get try and get to the bottom of it in a gentle respectful way but a direct gentle respectful way so if somebody said if anybody ever says to me um yeah i'm just not not sure if i can go on or um if i can make it or something like that i might just say hey what do you mean what do you mean by that when you said that just want to well i'm not what did you mean by that expression that 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 worried me a bit can you explain what you meant and that gives them an opportunity to clarify it and they might say oh no don't worry it's just it's just an expression i just say that all the time don't worry i'm, I'm fine okay or they might say yeah actually yeah i'm, I'm having suicidal thoughts so you're getting to the bottom of it um hopefully if the person is willing to be honest with you so you've, you're finding out it's like a risk risk assessment you find out how serious it is um and i'm what's maybe the worst thing that could happen is that they think oh none of your business you know don't pry okay well maybe that's a risk that you might be willing to take you might say oh sorry i didn't mean to didn't mean to suggest that i was just that you just worried me when you said that i just wanted to know because i care so you're showing the person that you care by cutting to the chase and i found that quite difficult you know early on i found it seemed to be a bit rude or something <laughs> or a bit confronting but it's a calculated risk so you you check in with them and you try and ascertain how serious this is um now the, the other thing i'll just say one more thing about it um i think the real the, the delicate the art of it the art of suicide um intervention is trying to get the balance right between trying to listen and understand why the person is suffering so much so you kind of try and draw that out of them a little bit what, what's going on how are you feeling what's going on with this person um drawing that out to get information and let them express it but then you're also wanting to you know bring them to the light so to speak and you're wanting to give them some hope and remind them of why they're alive and uh, remind them about their reasons for living and um, the people who care about them and stuff. So that's a really difficult balance to get right. And there's no perfect way of doing that. So you have to let go of this idea that there's this perfect thing that you can say if you follow the program. It's not like that at all. People aren't like that. But at least you, you're thinking in those terms, okay, let me, I wanna try and draw this stuff out of this person. So I find out what's going on and give them a chance to unload maybe, but also, in that when you're hearing about all the reasons to die hopefully you're getting glimpses of the reasons why they might live as well so they might be talking about how upset they are about a particular relationship that's gone sour or something and it shows that they care about that relationship and maybe uh, they might they might want to talk about how they might be able to get it back or something or improve it so it's a it's hard but i think the main thing is take the calc if you care about the person take the calculated risk and, and go there 
and try and get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I think, I mean, for someone who would be listening to that initial share, um, it might be hard to know what to do. But as you said, sort of from there, then, you know, taking it seriously, if they have uh, extended on what they've meant and they have divulged to you that they're not coping. Mm. And then, yeah, I guess for the person who is holding that space, would one of the best tools be to contact Lifeline themselves and, and get advice on how to handle this? Like where would that person who is showing that care, how could they also take steps forward with that person who's just shared that information? Yeah. I, yeah. Um, that's what you said is correct. I think um, that's one of the, that's what Lifeline is for. There are, there are, there are lots of very good, I always hear good things about all of the crisis lines. So suicide line, um, the um, women's information referral exchange, I think it's called wire um, beyond blue um, men's line youth line. There are heaps and heaps of crisis lines and I, I always hear good things about all of them. I just have personal experience with lifeline, but yes, you can absolutely call, as the third party, you can call on behalf of someone you're worried about. That's a big, that's a, that's a, a big part of Lifeline. And, and, you know, that's what they're for. That's what Lifeline is for. I mean, it's, you know, it's, they're under-resourced. A lot of these, these crisis lines are under, underfunded, like a lot of things in um, mental health. <clears throat> so there can be a long waiting time. Um, but you know, one thing's for sure, if it, a Lifeline counselor cares, they're not, they're not doing that job for fun or for money. They're doing it because they really, really care. And most of them are probably really, really good. And they'll do their best. Um, so, and I'm sure the other crisis lines are really, really good too. So yeah, that's something you can do. If it's an emergency, if it's red alert emergency, you call triple I. Triple I wasn't really um, a number I'd ever thought to call if I knew someone was in trouble or um in the risk of suicide or had had those conversations and i've probably known two in my life that i was concerned about um and i had called beyond blue um for both of them but yeah. i didn't actually realize I, yeah i just i suppose i've seen triple zero as an emergency so i think that's powerful alone just if you know if yeah. you can't get access to other numbers or you're in a state of panic for that person yeah. um, the red alert concern um and that's what the lifeline um counselor would tell you to do okay lifeline counselor would say well you know is this person at risk right now are they are they about to hurt themselves are they hurting themselves right now okay call triple o mm -hmm. yeah. well they might bore you or they might ask you to do it so it's, i mean it's a it's extreme but you know it's it's good to know i think the main thing is to to not dwell too much on it but to to think it through a little bit and think what would i do mm have even just the confidence of just having a couple of ideas about what you would do rather than just you know sweeping it under the carpet or changing the subject yeah yeah thank you um the other thing i was wanting to talk to you about was grief at the moment we've noticed um you know we're seeing the number rising with particularly with deaths in nursing homes so there are families that are struggling to grieve properly um, and I, I, I think for anyone that's seen any reports this week, um, 
has felt that deep raw emotion and knowing that our loved ones are in nursing homes or are in hospitals dying um, with very limited contact with their loved ones with other family members and, and families not having an opportunity to say a proper goodbye um, not only are we dealing with real grief in that moment but then the long-term aspect of grieving and the and the proper channels that we've had in place to grieve and the proper ceremonies that have taken place in the past in many ways have been stripped from us during this period of time how would you talk someone through um, coping with grief well my first my first response to that is um you know i had a i had a a very significant loss last year um one of my best friends and one of the one of the best things about the whole thing i suppose was the the funeral yeah and in just having suddenly having all of the all of his loved ones all in the same place was amazing you know just an incredible celebration and extremely didn't realize how fortunate we were to have that given the fact that that really can't happen at the moment so i just my first thought is just really really feeling for anyone who's and i've spoken to a few people who've um, had losses lately either linked to the coronavirus or not but no not being able to have the the funeral not being able to have the wake um, and in some cultures that's extremely powerful extremely important um, to have the celebration to have large funerals is is very very important so my first thought is just really really feeling for anybody who's going through that um, so you try to what you what you're missing out is the communal element so you just try your best to capture that somehow you know through what's possible at the moment which is zoom sessions like this and you just do your best again one of the things that I've learned over over the years and from reading and just talking to people is that you know there's you know you, you would have heard of the five stages of grieving comes up a lot in movies in the media and so on um importantly there's not much validity behind that theory um in terms of it's not you, people don't go through predictable stages of grief and bereavement in fact to claim that people do could be a bit of a problem because what if you don't <laughs> what if you skip skip one of the stages or you don't have one of them or you don't have any of them so that can be super disconcerting and just add it's like adding layers of stress and pressure to the to the situation so in trying to for me to pay attention to the things that do are relevant for grief there are really two things for me that stand out one is if you are grieving if you are, have had a significant loss of any kind the first thing is you have to up your self-care whatever you normally do to look after yourself or whatever you normally do in terms of your well-being whatever you know normally works for you do more of it because if you're not okay you can't be okay you can't help anyone else so you especially if you're surrounded by other people who are grieving in the family or friends or whatever so if you care about 
yourself, if you care about others, you will up your self-care, bolster yourself. So take extra care of yourself, in other words. So that would be always be the first thing I would think of and recommend that people do. Get people in touch and remind people what, that, what they do for their, for their mental health or their well-being or whatever. It could be anything, anything, whatever works. Is it walking? Is it chatting? Is it watching TV? Is it this or that? As long as it's safe, as long as it's safe and healthy coping mechanism, then just do it, do more of it. That'd be the first thing. Second thing, if this is, relates to the stages of grieving thing, expect the unexpected. That's the second rule. For me, anyway, that's the second rule. Expect the unexpected. You have no idea how you're going to feel day by day, week by week, hour by hour, minute by minute. You have no idea. Nobody knows. So you should expect the unexpected. You might feel, there might be a day when you feel surprisingly good. Like, oh, I'm over this. This is great. Back to normal. And then the next day you feel worse than you've ever felt. So you have like a false positive. Um, or the opposite. You know, you might, um, you might have a day where you feel much worse than you ever believed you could. Um, and that's that in itself is worrying. What if it just gets worse and worse? You don't know. So try to let go of the expectation of how you should be feeling. I've known people, some of the, you know, kind of interesting, unusual cases. I've, I've known people who have had a very, very powerful, significant loss, a parent or a sibling or partner or something like that. And they they reckon they felt nothing for a year. And then a year later, bang, just hits them like a ton of bricks. Or someone who, who um, is immediately extremely upset as soon as they hear the news, they just burst into tears and they're just absolutely um, miserable. Um, it's very powerful. And then, but it's super cathartic. And then they've, kind of seem to deal with it pretty well as a result. So who knows? Like you can't know. It's so complex. People are complex. Situations are complex. Relationships are complex. So the grieving process is complex. What you've touched on is, yeah, to and allow and give permission for the unexpected to come up. You know, I mean, I think that there's so much worry currently around COVID because there's what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. And I mean, what I tell my friends is we don't know. Like we just have to take it day by day. And there is such a, a pressure at the moment that is felt and there is an anxiety and there is an unknown because we've not been in this situation before. But a concept that I heard the other night, and I don't know um, you want to talk about it just for our last question, uh, which would be the idea, we've all heard of post-traumatic stress, but I heard a concept which was post-traumatic growth. And personally, I really love that concept, but I don't know a lot about it. And I don't know if that is something that could transpire once we are coming out of COVID. Mm. Yeah, it's a very rich topic, that one. It reminds me of that, the expression, which everyone has a different opinion on. It reminds you of that expression, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Now, my opinion on that, everyone has a different opinion on that saying, but mine is, well, it's mixed. I mean, 
some some things will make you weaker. You know, if you if you lose if you lose a limb, if you lose your arm in an accident, that side of your body is weaker. There's no two ways about it. You can compensate in various ways, get prosthetic limbs and all that, but to accept that, yeah, that in certain respect, that injury has made you weaker, whether it's physical, psychological, or whatever. So understanding that's that's the way it is. You have to accept that. Um, but also recognizing the ways in which people become stronger and more resilient. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's evidence. They've done lots of studies on this issue. There's, there's evidence that from, from interviewing people and questionnaires and so on, um, that people will describe the self-assessment. They will describe extra resilience as a result of um, trauma or hardship. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, there's a lot of stuff in Buddhism around this. Uh, the concept of you know suffering is is universal, and and that get, again people will interpret that in different ways. But my understanding of of that concept is that it's about reality. It's just about accepting reality. You know, and it's not a bad thing. It's just it is what it is. So you know, life and relationships and and various situations they're kind of they're all complex and they all have their challenges and so you know it's like choose your own version of suffering in a sense and if you embrace that and understand that suffering is universal or suffering is inevitable rather then um you might be more at peace with it and that would allow you degrees of freedom to get on with it and thrive so the idea of post-traumatic um thriving yeah i mean it's a real thing and it will happen so in some ways the trauma will will scar you it will make you weaker and you have to accept that there's no point pretending that you're fine if you're not in fact that just adds more pressure you won't be able to fool yourself you know you know something sucks it sucks and you can feel it um but to play with the opposites and recognize actually yeah, this is this has made me stronger in some ways. Like I'm much more resilient now after being in an abusive relationship or whatever. I'll never, you know, I now know what my boundaries are. For example, I'm going to be so much better at seeing signs of controlling behaviour or abusive behaviour. So, yeah, absolutely try to get get yourself in touch with the ways in which this is making you stronger, and you're becoming this different version of yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a super, super rich topic, but I, I think, I guess my personal bias would be about around realism around it. In some ways, the trauma has damaged you. Of course, it's life, life, life damages. Um, and in some ways, it will enhance you as well. The other, the other thought was about, um, when you're talking about uncertainty, you know, it's a, another really, really rich topic. Um, everyone will deal with uncertainty differently. You could say un uncertainty is almost like a, a synonym for anxiety. So everyone will deal with uncertainty differently. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to deal with it as long as it's healthy, as long as your coping mechanism, your way of dealing with uncertainty is, isn't making it worse, then it's fine. So what I might do if I'm talking to someone about it, who's saying, I'm super anxious, I'm really worried, I don't know where this is going to go can't see the light at the end of the tunnel i might just say well i'll try and explore with them what what do you do when you're anxious what do you do when you're faced with uncertainty how do you how do you handle it 
when um, you are uncertain? How do you deal with uncertainty itself? Um, just to have them reflect on it. And, and by reflecting on how you deal with uncertainty, you might realize that you have a bit more control over it than you thought you did. It's like when I, when I, for example, when I'm anxious or when I'm uncertain, I just, I just stay in bed. That's what I do. I just send a freeze or I just stay in bed. It's like, okay. Um, does it matter? Well, yes and no. It kind of matters because I don't get stuff done. Okay. Well, what do you want? Do you need to get done? All right. Um, Maybe you could do a bit of both. Maybe use a, you can there's a bit of room for staying in bed, but maybe to you know put a limit on it, and just get the person to explore the pros and cons of their coping mechanisms. Hopefully, with a view to realizing actually, yeah, I actually have some choices here. Dr. Stuart Norton, you have given us so many tools and such a um, such an important topic. You know, especially now and it's because there, there, it is happening you know there is suffering on mass right now and it is for if it's not you it's someone who's close to you and it's it's really valuable that you've been able to share with us tools and signs and how to coping mechanisms and something that i was really getting from you was just permission to allow and to be how you are on a day-to-day -day basis so I know that Teresa and I are very, very grateful that you could spend this time to share with us and to hopefully whoever is watching this can, will, will be able to relate to, you know, multiple things or anything that you've shared. So I'm really, really blessed. T, I don't know if you want to share anything as well. <laughs> yes, I do. And I just want to sincerely thank you, Dr. Stewart. Um, I love, the way with which, with which you explained and it's such a lovely opportunity just to hear things slightly different as well and and have a different understanding um, and particularly I'm with Kat what I got out of that was that permission to just be you know the permission to stay in bed if if you yeah. can and, yeah. and then the follow-up questions that you ask yourself and I think it just raises you know we live constantly with a guilt of to be doing or to be feeling or to be a particular way and and that whole state of busyness that this period of time is getting us to rethink that True. um and really what you're sharing is like just go inward go inward yeah. and ask those little questions about yourself um but you know we've touched on some really larger topics here as well and I, I sincerely thank you for your honesty on that and you know for any of our listeners um, we will have numbers um on the screen and of the podcast Stuart thank you for bringing all of that to our attention um we wish you well you and uh, and blessings to you thank you it's been great thanks very much guys if this episode has caused discomfort, you can choose to call Lifeline 131114 or Beyond Blue 1300 224 636.